The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. through Amos since the summer, and we've really arrived in kind of the meaty, the meaty middle of, of Amos this morning, and um, before we get to it, I want to lay out for us three kind of foundational things to build on uh, as, we, as we go this morning, and three quick things to get us kind of caught up with Amos. Um, the first one is... Um, now this isn't working. Man, there are gremlins everywhere this morning, I tell you. Um, the first one is that Amos was an unlikely outsider prophet. The unlikely outsider prophet, um, meaning Amos was a southern boy. He wasn't even from Israel. He was from this south, small town, no-name city. And more than that, he was a shepherd, meaning lowest on the totem pole shepherd. That was our man Amos. Just completely unlikely, and yet he was who God chose to be his mouthpiece. Love that. What a reminder that is. Number two, Amos was what I have called a good time prophet. What I mean by a good time prophet is that in the time Amos was, was ministering, things were going pretty well for Israel. There was wealth, there was prosperity, there was security. He was a good time prophet. At this time, the people of Israel viewed themselves as the top of the food chain. It's a good time prophet. That's number two. And then number three is that Amos had an incredibly difficult message to deliver. One of judgment and exile and destruction. And so as we put all three of these together, I think we get a good picture of what Amos 6 is going to be. We have an unlikely outsider prophet who is delivering a message, a difficult message of destruction and judgment to a people who are in a good time, a time of wealth, a time of prosperity, a time of security. For Amos, that is a tough calling. That is not one that um, he would have probably signed up for on his own power, but fortunately it wasn't by his power. By the grace and the power of God, he was given this message. But, but more than, than that, if you're Israel, this was an incredibly difficult message to hear. An incredibly difficult message um, to, to hear. And I want to start with an analogy to bring this closer to home. I've said this before, and, and, and this might be, um, you might have heard me say this, but, but I say this because it does, I think it's so important for us to start kind of close to home. Um, I want to rewind, and, and when we were praying about potentially starting this church, planting this church, we were, we were praying about the potential of starting a new church. All we knew is we were excited about the gospel. It had changed our lives. We were excited about the potential to start a, a church that was biblically grounded, and we believed in the local church, and we wanted to see a healthy, 
biblical church that was centered on the gospel and intentionally simple. Like, that was what we wanted. We knew that. But here's the question. Where? Where was God sending us? Where was God calling us? Um, four years prior to, to 2014 when we moved, um, God had put on my heart North Central San Antonio. And don't hear me wrong, it wasn't like some audible, like, go to North Central. It wasn't like that. Um, Thus saith the Lord, it was not like that. But all the way back then, I began to feel this, this, this pull. And so I started praying for North Central San Antonio. I started doing demographic surveys and reports because I'm a nerd on North Central San Antonio and just started to pray like, Lord, what if, what, what could you be doing? And, and if we fast forward to 2014 when we finally moved here to start the long work of prep, preparing to, to start Stone Oak Bible, um, do you want to know what the number one objection was when we were in this, this season? I was meeting with people all the time, just telling them what God was doing and um, the number one pushback, you want to know what it was? We would hear, I love what you're doing, I love this vision, but why Stone Oak? I would hear, um, you know, this, this, is a, this is not a community that's really that in need. I would hear, um, this is a relatively affluent community, everything's shiny in Stone Oak, everything's new. Um, the things are good there. It's not, it's not, the need's not huge there. Why, why don't you go to a community that is hurting? Why don't you go to a community that is in need? Now, these are fair questions. Um, here's the thing, though. These questions just further solidified the calling that God had put on our hearts to plant a biblically grounded church in Stone Oak. These, okay, it was through this that I really began to understand the great challenge that was in front of us. It was through this time that I started to see, better see, the great obstacle that we were going to face. Listen, every single ch community has its challenges. Every one of them. Every, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. So every community is messy and in need. Every one of them. Now, there are other communities in our city. As we look at this map, there are other communities that are more in um, hurting economically. There are areas of our city where you drive down the street and you see brokenness literally on the streets. That is absolutely true. And, and those communities need the gospel. They need the gospel. They need healthy. They need biblical churches. They need... Um, Christ's people to share the good news and to be the hands and feet of Jesus in those communities. They are in need for us to step in and have an incarnational ministry for the glory of God. But here's the thing. Here in our community, we're different and the same. Here's what I mean. In some ways, I'm going to argue both from scripture and from practical experience that our community can be much more challenging Here's the truth. Our community still needs the gospel just as much. Amen. Our community still needs biblical, healthy churches, the people of God to be the people of God, to share the good news. But here's the thing. In our community, often we are unaware of that need. Often here we are self-sufficient. We have enough money. We live in beautiful and safe neighborhoods. And our kids go to safe schools. 
Praise God for that. We have good jobs and we are good. And here's the challenge. The, the, the good news of a savior is not all that great when you don't think you need saving. The good news of the light is not all that great when you don't think you're in the dark. The good news is not all that great when you think you're good. Reinald uh, Niebuhr once said that a gospel minister, you might have heard this quote, should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. In so many ways, we must, we must be about both of those things. Yet in our community, um, as we seek to be a healthy, biblical church, being the hands and feet of Jesus, as we seek to do that, oftentimes we are called here to afflict the comfortable before we can then comfort the afflicted. Oftentimes what I mean by this is we have to start with the bad news before we can go into the good news. Oftentimes, we must start by telling people, you are not okay. Like, you're not okay. All of this stuff, as great as it is, will not save you or fix you. You're not okay. You're not good. We have to start there before we are able to tell them about the good news of Jesus. Because Jesus is not just one of those things that we add on to our list of other saviors. We have to start with the bad news. We need to tell them why we need saving before we share the good news of the Savior. Here's, um, don't misunderstand me, by the way. I'm not comparing myself to Amos, or you to Amos, or north central San Antonio to Israel. This is an analogy. As we get to this text, it's an analogy to show us that the challenge that we face today in breaking through the self-sufficiency is the same one that Amos faced in this time, in this book. Scripture speaks about the challenge of wealth quite a bit. In fact, Jesus speaks about it um, quite a bit, and um, he makes this statement that it's more difficult for a wealthy man to enter heaven. He's not saying money is evil. He's not saying that wealthy people are the problem. Church, he's pointing to the incredible danger of self-sufficiency. In fact, I want to I put what Jesus says up here. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. His disciples hear this. When they hear it, they are greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this, that is salvation, this is impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. Sufficiency tells us that I am good. God, I might need you later when I'm on my death net. I, I might need you then. But I'm good now. Got things figured out now. I have enough money, enough stuff, enough savings. I'm good. And Jesus reminds us here that that self-sufficiency is the path to hell. That self-sufficiency is fatal to your and my soul. And it's not that money and prosperity are, are evil. They just make really lousy saviors. And more than that, they make deadly distractions. Deadly distractions from our great need for a savior. They made lousy saviors then in Amos. 
They make lousy saviors and distractions for us today. Um, and I'm convinced if you're visiting with us and you're from another community, if you're joining us online and you're from another community, I can say with full confidence that they make lousy saviors and deadly distractions wherever you may be from. Wherever you may be from. So this morning, here's my, my mission. Here's what scripture is calling us to do. Tear down the false security. Bring it down. Wake up from our distractions and to point to Jesus and to build our true security in him. So to, to sum, sum it up, here's where we're going. Tear down false saviors. Tear them down. Tear down the things that distract us from our need for a savior. And then let's point together to the true savior. So we're going to be looking at this morning. That's our goal. And our text, like I said, is, is Amos 6. Um, I do have one more warning before I get into Amos 6. Um, this is going to be a larger section of scripture than normal, and I apologize for that. So typically we go significantly slower than what I'm about to do, okay? Typically we go a lot slower through, um, through the text, but this morning we're going to take a bigger section. We're doing it because of the way it's connected. I could not break this thing up. So forgive me. We're going to be here for four hours. It's all going to talk. We won't. Uh, but forgive me. We're going to take a bigger one. We're going to take a bigger chunk. Um, so buckle up. We cover some ground. And we start in hot and heavy. So the first six verses of what we're going to look at are going to be two woes. Woe number one in verses one through three. Woe number two in verses four through six. Let's look at our first woe. And let's just blast out of the gate together. All right? Here we go. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, and then go down to Gath to, of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far off the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to you who are at ease, who feel secure. You are wealthy, you are self-satisfied, you are rich, you are comfortable, you feel secure on your mountain, secure in your nation, secure at the top of that food chain. Woe to you. Here they feel secure in their placement, literally on the mountain. It was tough, tough nut to crack. They felt secure up there. Literally felt secure geographically, but more than that, they feel secure in their wealth. They feel secure in their power. They feel secure. Woe to you who are at ease. Woe to you who feel secure. And Amos here encourages them, if you see this, to look at the nations, some of the other nations around them. He, he says, look at them, to Kalna, to Hamath, to the Philistines. Look at them. Are you better than them? Are their ter territories greater than yours? It's a difficult verse to unpack because it's a bit of a rhetorical question, a little sarcasm in this question. Um, and what it does is it speaks to the way that people saw themselves at the top of the food chain. They believed they were the big guys on the block, and there was a certain level of pride that they were strutting around with here in this time. There's a commentator with a great name, Trimper Longman III. That's an awesome name. Uh, commentator in um, 
the book of Amos says, the people of Amos' day are boasting of their national security and power. The prophet proclaims, woe to those who feel secure in the strength of their nation. His parroting of their affirmations of self-assurance and national pride underscores their complacency and places their false pride in stark contrast to the doom he predicts in a subsequent context. What is he saying? He's saying, well, people, the people feel at ease. They feel secure in themselves and in their nation and in their stuff and in their strength and security. And this pride and complacency church was going to crumble. Crumble. Woe to you. That's the first woe. Let's move to our second. You ready? Woe number two. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, who stretch themselves out on their couches, eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall, sing idol songs to the sound of a harp, and like David, just invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Every part of this church, every part of this points to this lavish, self-indulgent life. Every part of it. From the beds of ivories, ivory to the couches. From the lambs, to the cows, singing of idle songs, lounging around, to the wines, not in cups, but in bowls. Get that? Wow. This is lavish, self-indulgence, but more than that, do you know what all of this is? Distraction. Distraction. Woe to you who are living in comfort, lavish self-indulgence, enjoying all the pleasures of life to their absolute fullness, wine in bowls, not cups. Woe to you without seeing or grieving over the ruin. Distraction. This speaks to our tendency to want to run. When we don't want to deal with pain, when we don't want to deal with, with the struggle, the grief, when we don't want to do the hard work, when we don't want to confess, we don't want to repent, to deal with our brokenness and sin, why not play a, play a game? Let's go buy something new. Let's do a new project. Let's distract ourselves with the greatest food and the greatest drink and the most comfort we can possibly get. Let's distract ourselves. When the truth is painful, we have a tendency to self-medicate with distraction as much as your money can get you. And their money got them a lot. Bowls. Got them a lot. But this is our tendency for the people in Amos. They're not dealing with the ruin they're too busy with the fleeting pleasure of their distractions. You gotta ask though, is it wrong to feast? Is it wrong to lounge and to rest? Is it wrong to enjoy good things and good food and good drink? Yes and no. Ecclesiastes says there is a time for all those things. All those things. It is not wrong to feast. During a feast. It's not wrong to lounge and to rest during a time of rest like a Sabbath. 
It's not wrong to enjoy good things when we have the time to enjoy them, when it honors, that honors God, the giver of good things. When we enjoy these good things and focus our attention and energy up to him, that is not wrong. That brings God glory. That is good. That is awesome. Okay? Yet it is wrong to pursue those things in excess. It is wrong to pursue those things as a distraction from what God is calling you to do. That is wrong. Work is a great thing that can bring much glory to God. It's also an evil thing that you can make your God. One is good. One is not. One is good, one is not. God is calling us to open our eyes. Woe to you who are at ease. Woe to you who feel secure. Woe to you who are distracting yourself with all of your nice luxuries. We have woe number one. Woe to you who have this false security. Distraction, or woe number two. Woe to you who are distracting yourselves. And I want you to listen. Let's listen to what God says to both of these woes. Verse seven. Therefore... They shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out will pass away. Would you notice what the word of God just did here? Think about the woes. Woe number one. Woe number one. You who have a false sense of security. They will be the first to go into exile. Woe number two, woe to you who are distracting yourselves with all the luxury and stretching yourselves out on your nice fancy couches. The revelry of those who do such things, who stretch yourselves out on those nice couches, will pass away. The false security will not last. The distractions that you love to distract yourself with will not last. In verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. That's a big statement. Thus saith the Lord is, is sure to happen, but when thus saith the Lord says, I swear thus saith the Lord. Ooh, it's sure to happen. And listen to what he says. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Here is the judgment. It is extensive. Why does God hate the pride of Jacob? Why does God hate the strongholds? Why? It's because God hates false gods. God hates false securities. He hates them. He hates these things because they lead to destruction and death. He hates these things because they lead to injustice and complacency. Ultimately, God hates these things because God is good perfect. And here in Amos, God swears he's going to bring all of it, bring them to an end. Now, verses 9 and 10. I told you, a lot of text this morning. I'm going to bring it together. Don't worry. Verses 9 and 10. As you look at this, it probably looks weird in your Bible. You notice the like stutter step it kind of makes in your Bible? Now, if your Bible is like mine, and in most Bibles that I've seen, it's going to be in kind of, it's going to be written in prose, and all of a sudden, 9 and 10 goes, boom, paragraph. You notice that? Is it like that in your Bible? There's something that happened here. This is kind of a pit stop, and the way to look at this is it's kind of like an example that God gives, a very specific example of what he's talking about. It's kind of like a sidestep example. 
And as we look at this, um, listen to the, the picture that gets painted here. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him, who is in the innermost parts of the house? Is there anyone, or is there still anyone with you? He shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Okay, that's a strange scene. That's just a strange scene. It, it, you, what it is is a funeral scene, a burial, prep for burial scene, meaning death has already happened, funeral scene. And there is so much dispute as you look at the literature written about these two verses. It's kind of funny. Um, there's a lot of details that commentators might disagree on, but here's the thing. We are absolutely clear about the point of this story. And the point of this story, what we see in this scripture, is that God's judgment on them is thorough, extensive, and complete. And that in the midst of this judgment, in the funeral scene after this judgment falls, there is this command, silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Shh. Don't mention his name. Why? Why would it ever say that? church because it's too late the destruction had already happened it's like isaiah says in isaiah 55 6 seek the lord while he may be found call upon him while he is near repent before it's too late and what we see in this text is a reminder that a time is coming when it will be too late. And the judgment of God, again, it is thorough. Let's knock out the, the, the last section here together. Let's look at this together. Verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow <clears throat> there with, op, with oxen? Um, the implied answer to that, by the way, no. Um, but you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. And then listen to verse 13. You who rejoice in Lodabar. So Lodabar, I'm going to Usually I don't do this, but this word literally means, and your, your translation might actually put the English word here for this, literally means nothing. You who rejoice in nothing. Who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? I'm going to do it again. Carnaim, another Hebrew word here. Translated, it means horns. And you're like, well, that's weird. But in this context, this horn is a symbol of strength. So as you look at this, what you see here is you who rejoice in nothing, in your nothingness, who say, we, have we not by our own strength captured the horn, the strength, 
the power? Have we not gained this power for ourselves and to that stinky pride? Verse 14, God says this. For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebohamath to the brook of Arabah. I'm going to sum this whole verse up in four words. You ready? The Assyrians are coming. The Assyrians are coming, and they would come. That happens. 721 B.C., that happens. Roughly 30 years after this was written, that happens. Assyria comes. Judgment comes. It happens. Okay, there's a lot of text. Here we go. Now we're going to do the work of putting all of that together, okay? I want to bring this, this together. God's word says this. As we look at Amos 6, it says, Woe to you who place your, your, your um, trust in false security. Woe to you who distract yourself with all of your stuff, right? And then God's word says, I hate those things you place your false security in. God hates the things that you've distracted yourself with. And by his grace, he wants to tear it down, bring it down, and wake you up from your distractions. To remind you, to remind all of us, wake up. The things we place our security in so puny. The distractions are so empty. I promise I'm going to try not, I'm not doing this to depress you but I'm going to depress you for just a moment. Um, do you realize how vulnerable you are when you try to stand on your own stuff and power? Here's the question. Where is your confidence in? What is it in? Where is your security? There's, there's a few things that maybe run your mind. I don't have my wallet, but maybe it's money. Maybe it's, maybe it's money. That's where your confidence is. I got to ask you, I hope not, because how unstable is that? Like, it could all be gone tomorrow. Worse, it could be worthless tomorrow. If I had a dollar bill, it's paper. Someone else assigns it value, and that value goes, wee, wee, it's like a roller coaster ride. If your stability is in that, how puny is that? for your confidence and security. There's a war going on in Ukraine, and that war has caused inflation here. How unstable is that? How unstable is that? Markets rise, they fall, stocks rise, they plummet, even the surest, most steady investments. They're not immune to this, and we know this. You know this. How weak is paper for the foundation of our lives? In scripture, he talks about building your house on the, the rock or the sand. Money's worse. It's paper. It's worse than that. It's, it's, the theological word is stupid to do that. Right? How weak is that for our confidence? You and I, we could lose it all in one moment. One moment. It's gone. Money's not evil. It's not. But hear me, your confidence in it, your worship of it, your heart for it, your false security in it, that is evil. 
It's your heart that's evil. It's not just money, though. It can be so many other things. I want to depress us all. Um, health. Health is your confidence in your health. Church, that's just as foolish as money. Because like money, your health is unstable. It could be gone tomorrow. You're not promised good health. I praise God for health. One day, I know that we will see Jesus face to face, and all of us will walk in unfading good health. But that's not the promise for today. To cling to your health as your confidence in life is like James says, clinging to vapor or a puff of smoke. It's, re- it's just crazy, and you can't grab it. It's gone. There's no confidence there. Maybe it's your job. Some of you have a great job, but as great as it is and as secure as you feel, you could lose it tomorrow. Economies go up and economies go down. Things happen. It could be gone. Maybe for you, it's your marriage, it's your family. Again, you could lose it tomorrow. It could be gone. I really don't mean to depress you. And I know I'm doing a great job of it. Um, But listen, my point is that none of these things are designed to give you the security that you crave. None of them. They will all crumble under the weight. Every single one of them. They are good things. They are things that maybe you and I, we want. But they are not meant to give you the security that your heart needs. And if your confidence is in any of those things, then I hope I am doing a great job in depressing you. Because it's just like our text, like like Amos in our text says, God wants to tear down those things, the false securities, so that you can know the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is the security that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the joy of the Lord that nothing and no one can ever, ever, ever take away. God wants to tear down all those false securities so that you can know the true security in Christ. That we would know the joy of Romans 8. I could not but help put it on the screen. All right, look at this. What then shall we say to these things? All the things of life. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not with him also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Oh, take this in, church. Here we go. No. Love that word. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation gets it all. All of it. 
None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, church. How is that for security? I want you to trade in all that false security. I want you to trade it all in for that, for the eternal security in Christ. I don't want to depress you. I want you to look up. Because all of this stuff will fade All of it will one day crumble, but nothing, not even death and any of this stuff on this list and even the catch-all, anything else, none of it, none of it will separate us from Christ. How is that for security? Like, how is that for security? So my prayer is that you would lay down your false security and, and, and pick up the true security that is Christ. But it's not just that, because that only deals with the first woe. I think it's also important that we would hear the second woe, and that you and I would put down the distractions. I don't know if you can relate to this feeling at all. But you, do you know that feeling? When you have something big to do, maybe it's something that is difficult, maybe it's a, I don't know, a phone call you don't want to make, a project that you have to do, whatever it may be. You have something big, it's looming. Do you know that feeling when, when that thing is looming and all you want to do is waste time? You know? Like, half of you smiled, so I know at least half of you know. The other half are in denial. Um, it's looming, and so all you want to do, you have a big project, instead of doing that, you organize your desk for the 15th time. You have a big project, and you're like, my car really needs to be washed. Now's a good time. I'm going to go do that. Maybe you have a phone call to make, and it's going to be hard, and so, man, one more show. I'll be ready after one more Netflix episode. One more. Whatever it may be. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Here's the reality. Coming to Jesus, coming to Christ, giving yourself to Jesus, repenting of sin, placing your trust in Jesus is the single most important thing of your life. There is nothing more important the single most important thing in your life without question. And yet in that moment, in this moment, perhaps, rather than allowing God to do that work in us, rather than repenting of our sin and coming to him, rather than doing that, what can happen so easily is our our minds just go and fill up with distractions. We think to ourselves, you know, that repentance stuff is, is good, but I'm kind of hungry. I wonder what we're going to eat for lunch today. I wonder, I wonder if I'll have time to get that project done. I wonder about the game. Some of you had a rough game last night. Some of you are worried about a rough game today. There's always a game. There's always, there's always a game. Our minds can look for the distractions, whatever it may be. There are thousands and thousands of distractions that you can give yourself to. Thousands of them. And I'm convinced that if the enemy can't get you to outright reject Jesus, I'm convinced that he is just as happy if he can distract you from Jesus with all kinds of good or bad things. That's a win in his book. My prayer is that we would put down the false security we have in our stuff, that we put down the distractions that we have with our stuff, and that we would come to Christ, and that we would make the enemy really, really angry today by listening to the woes of Amos 6. 
that we would infuriate him and that we would run to Jesus. And I want to put this scripture on the, on the screen again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Church, hear me. He is near. Scripture tells you that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What that tells me is that he can be found. He is near. Call on him. Let's call on him that he would have mercy on us and compassion on us. That we would know the joy of the Lord in Christ, the peace, the security, no matter what we face, and that nothing, that we would truly know and understand that nothing that you face or will face or have faced will separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing. You have security. Let us put down the false and walk in that. Amen? Let's make the enemy mad today.